Good to see you today. My name is Gary. I'm also one of the pastors on the team and have the privilege of sharing with you this morning as we continue in our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, which, without a doubt, one of the most amazing sections of Scripture. Just three chapters long, and so much is packed into a relative handful of verses. Now, just to give you a little bit of insight, you're going to hear all kinds of nuggets along the way throughout this entire series. And uh, you're going to say on occasion, I knew that was in the Bible somewhere. And now you're going to know where that is. So uh, take good notes in in these uh, days and weeks to come, and you'll be glad that you did. Because the Sermon on the Mount is, without a doubt, the best sermon ever. And we make it clear, it's not about what we're preaching in terms of our ability, but it's Jesus' teaching, and it's the most profound section of Scripture, perhaps, in all the New Testament, as, uh, as, as all of these great teachings of Jesus are pulled together in just a relatively uh, few pages. Now, some would argue that today's passage is the most significant part of the Sermon on the Mount because in it, Jesus says something that is without a doubt, for many of us, the toughest thing possible. He says, love your enemies. Now, maybe a few weeks ago, that didn't seem you know, like that pressing of an issue, but the news over the last several weeks and just the tensions we see around the world, uh, th- this whole question of how do we go about this? What did Jesus mean when he talked about this? And without a doubt, left to our own devices, our first reaction is so often one of striking back. Uh, maybe you've heard this phrase. I- I've heard it so many times through the years. People say this. Fill it in if you can. I don't get mad. I get even. I don't get mad. I get even. And, and we often say that as kind of a mantra that has some pride around it, like, like nobody's going to diss me. Nobody's going to say or do anything that, that causes me to think that somehow... Um, that I'm being put down or I'm being challenged in some way. I get back, and when I come back at somebody, it, it's, it's going to be a powerful comeback, and it won't be good. Now, it's in this context that Jesus repeatedly says, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And by the way, on the you heard it said side of the equation, uh, there were a lot of good things that were said. There were some great teachings that were out there, but Jesus comes along and he says, whatever it is you've heard, I'm going to take everything to another level. I'm going to say things and I'm going to do things that that are more profound than anything you could imagine. And guess what? As my followers, you're invited into this as well. Now, when I think about the Sermon on the Mount, I think it could be summarized in, in two words, something more. Every passage we're going to be looking at over the summer, you'll walk away with it going, Jesus is saying there's something more. Whatever it is we've been doing or thinking, uh, it's going to be elevated to another level. You know, I, I, when I'm driving, sometimes I'll look at the cars in front of me and look, they'll have a license plate. You try to figure out what they wrote in some kind of code and what the message is on the back of the car. They use letters and numbers. And other times there are interesting bumper stickers. You know, one I came across a while back, it said this, um, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. And I thought that's an interesting way to talk about adventure in life, to think about, about making sure that we're making an impact in life. And I believe all of these things are true. It has a lot to do with risk. And everybody knows in the room, I'm sure, the greater the risk, the greater the reward. But sometimes our human inclination is to not take the risk. I have a young daughter. Not too long ago, she, she passed that, that magical line that makes you an adult in years, 21. We have these conversations, and maybe you've had this conversation with one of your kids. 
Uh, look, you can't escape risk. Everything is about risk management in life. Where am I willing to stretch and take a risk? And what, what is it that causes me to hold back? And this is nowhere more true than, uh, than in this area of love that we're going to be talking about this morning. You see, love is the ultimate risk. Love is the ultimate risk. C.S. Lewis said a lot of profound things, but he has this quote that, that has stayed with me over the years, and it'll be on the screen. It goes like this. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little treasures. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in a safe casket of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark and motionless and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Sometimes, as Martin Luther said, the Bible all the time is the best commentary on itself. And there's a passage that comes from Paul a little bit later. It's in the book of Galatians. It goes like this. Many of you know the verse. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now, that's a verse that's well worth reflecting on often throughout your Christian journey because unless we really embrace this idea that the life that I now live, once I came to Jesus, all of the ways of the past are gone. It doesn't mean we don't mess up. It doesn't mean you know, our personalities are always totally radically changed. What it does mean is there is a mindset that says, there was a way I lived, but I died to that way, and I'm now living a new life with God's power. Mark Batterson says this about consecration, which is what Paul is talking about. He says, consecration is the complete surrender to the Lordship of Christ. We relinquish everything to God, our time, our talent, and treasure. It's a complete divestiture. Nothing belongs to us, not even ourselves. Now, hear that again. Nothing belongs to us, not even ourselves. Now, it's one thing to say it. It's very hard to live into it. At times, even with it would seem God's help. But the, but the picture there that's painted, the picture of how we're to live, is absolutely essential to understand that nothing belongs to us. It all belongs to the Lord. So in this passage, Jesus is talking really about giving up our rights. This is a voluntary choice. This is not about somebody pressuring you into giving up your rights. It's about what Paul says. You're dying to an old way of life. You're living a new life in Christ. You're under his lordship, and now you willingly relinquish these rights. And he hits five of these rights that I want us to think about this morning. Number one, give up your right to revenge. Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. Now, when you first read that, it seems pretty harsh, right? I mean, somebody hits you, hit them back. But really, it's justice at its best, historically. It's been called the law of tit for tat. What you do to me, I do to you. The principle is the oldest law on the books. It's been around in other cultures thousands of years, even before Jesus literally walked on the planet. This whole idea of equity, this idea of, of, of somehow mitigating the violence, the revenge that tends to be in the human heart. I'll give you an example. 
Back when I was a kid, I have two brothers that are older than me, and uh, once in a while, you know, as boys, 10, 11, 12 years old, we would get in fights. I know it's hard to believe, but we really did. And we get in the fight, and usually it started with a, a little punch, right? But when one of my brothers got punched, do you think the other brother punched back with equal force? Or do you think maybe he escalated it? If you said escalated it, you win. It always escalates. There's something about violence, and we're seeing it run amok in our world today. Violence always escalates, always. This is why Jesus' words are so important. But way back in the Old Testament, it says this, show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's a picture, believe it or not, of mercy in the ancient world. Because in the ancient world, when violence was done against a family member, then, then all hell literally broke loose, and the, and the other family paid a steep price. Over time, uh, it began to move away from physical uh, paying back to financial. And so as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see something about if someone is injured or some animal is injured, the person that does the injuring needs to pay a financial price. So fortunately, it at least moved away from physical violence. But, but the reality is equal justice under the law was the best teaching of its time until Jesus came along. That whole idea of being made equal was this concept of equal justice under the law. I'll give you a personal example. I, I was uh, driving a couple of years ago, going to pick my brother up at the airport, and I was on, I was on the 520, and I got to that uh, interchange with 405 South. You know what I'm talking about, where traffic backs up forever? And I'm sitting in that traffic, and, and this happens all the time, especially now that I uh, was sitting in that traffic, and I'm always looking around, like, who's going to try to cut in? What's going to happen? Cars are going fast. You know what it's like. You're sitting there. You're like a sitting duck. And all of a sudden, I heard that unwelcome sound of a car hitting a car. I looked up in my rearview mirror, and I could see cars cascading toward me. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, I got hit. And I was the fourth car hit, so I was fortunate. By the time the impact got to me, it wasn't too bad, just $1,500 worth of bad. Later that day, I talked to the insurance adjuster, and he said, don't worry, the insurance company will take care of it. Uh, they will indemnify you. They will make you whole. Now, this is an insurance term, of course, that, that, that means to, to, to repair in such a way that, that nothing is lost. Nothing is gained, but nothing is lost. It's to make whole. It's, it's, it's indemnification. That's the best the world can offer, isn't it? And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know, you look at the world, and even in our day, we talk about justice, that equal justice under the law, but Jesus says, I'm taking it to a higher level. He talks about turning the other cheek. Now, you'll miss this passage if you think about it only in terms of somebody striking you, like punching you in the face. It really isn't that. It's more of the backhanded slap across the face. He's talking about the ultimate insult. In today's terminology, we would probably think about it in our culture as somebody spitting in your face. It's like the ultimate insult that somebody can bring to you. More painful even at times than being physically punched is just the idea of somebody so, uh, so ravishing you with their, with their uh, actions in such a way that insults you. Jesus says, don't cave into retaliation. That's a difficult thing. The good news, though, is Jesus didn't just talk about it. Jesus actually lived it. Think about the words, too, that were thrown his way. Friend of sinners and tax collectors. That was a condemnation in his time. A wine-bibber, a person who drinks too much wine. A child of the devil. That can't be good if somebody calls you that. 
Jesus said, let it come. You know, throughout history, nonviolent resistance, especially in modern times, has been illustrated by uh, Mahatma Gandhi comes to mind, uh, also Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., both, both men who, who looked to Jesus and this particular teaching and said, that's the way to shape the world. It's not power. It's not somehow bringing the forces of government down in situations. There is something so powerful about a person under control. I was thinking about a lot of the great old movies. That's sort of the impression. You see, you see the, the protagonist, the, the hero in the story, so often gets insulted, but they don't respond. They don't react in a negative way. They somehow make things right, but it's not a violent kind of response. He gives a second example. He says, give up your right to things. If someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. All right, in this passage, he's really, again, just talking about, are you willing to, to take that leap? Are you willing to be generous? Or, or have you allowed things to control you? Now, I, I heard a troubling statistic the other day. It said this. It said, the average American home today contains, you ready for this, 340,000 things. All right, from the toothbrush to your car. You know, 340,000 things. Small wonder life feels out of control, and there's this huge movement right now toward living a simpler lifestyle moving into tiny homes, somehow living out of a backpack instead of having all this stuff that somehow takes control of our lives. Years ago, I was uh, pastoring in, in Southern California. I was in San Diego, and, um, and I, I was renting a condo from a friend. And, and in renting this condo, it was great. It was an awesome place, and I went away with my friends for a weekend of skiing. I got back to my house and uh, my, my condo. My condo had been broken into. And I found out that not just was my condo broken into, but, but a series of condos were broken into. The following Friday, everything that was stolen appeared in, a, in the community newspaper in a section called the infamous police blotter, you know, where they talk about all this stuff. And so I had a copy of the paper. I was looking at it, and it was listed in detail, everything that was stolen. For example, it would give the person's address, and then it would say what was stolen and their approximate value. Necklace, $5,000. Rolex watch, $8,000. Painting, $7,500, and so on. Uh, maybe you're thinking he lived in a wealthy neighborhood. I did at the time. And you know how you can tell you're in a wealthy neighborhood, right? You go down the street, and you see the mothers, they're chuckling the baby, Gucci, 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 Gucci. <laughs> Just saying. Anyway, the police blotter goes through all these addresses. It gets to my address, and it says, value of item stolen, zero. You see, Jesus isn't against possession, so don't hear me that way this morning. He's not against you having things that bring enjoyment to your life, things within a balance of perspective, affordability, all of those considerations. That what he's saying is, if we're not careful, things can possess us, I think. I was in a store in Bell Square uh, when a guy walked in. He was at the sales counter with me, and he finished his transaction. He was walking away, and as he walked away, he forgot his cell phone on the, on the counter. And so the clerk picked it up, and she ran after him, and she good-naturedly called out to him, Sir, do you belong to this phone? <laughs> Perspective. Did you realize that last year it's been reported that more people were killed taking selfies than by sharks? I thought that was interesting. 27 people. Yeah. See what can happen when you're taking a selfie? 27 people died worldwide while taking selfies. Now, of course, we've moved to extreme selfies. 
People died like this, posing in front of an oncoming train, in a boat that tipped over at a picnic during a selfie, on a cliff that gave way and crumbled into a 60-foot ravine. This past week, a young woman died in, uh, at Grand Canyon. She had an accident taking the selfie, fell off a cliff. Mumbai, India, by the way, uh, they've had such a problem there, they have established selfie-free zones. Isn't that interesting? A selfie-free zone. It reminds me of Paul's words. You know, Paul was ahead of his time. 2,000 years earlier, he said this, do nothing out of selfie ambition <laughs> or vain conceit. Rather, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you should look to the interests of others. I mean, Yogi Berra got it right. He translated this passage this way. It ain't the heat, it's the humility. Think about that one. Jesus gives a third example. He says, give up your right to time. Uh, if you haven't figured out by now, the most precious commodity, if you will, that you have in life is time. Time can never be saved, only spent. Time is precious. We think about it today. There are all kinds of time managers and all kinds of books and seminars about managing your time when it's really self-management. But the reality is time mattered in Jesus' day too. People valued their time. In Jesus' day, the Roman army was famous for its efficiency and infamous for its cruelty. And what they would do is, because they were the oppressing power, if they were walking along and had a heavy burden to carry, they would go up to someone and say, hey, you, they'd grab them, and they'd make that person carry that luggage or whatever they were carrying, what was called a Roman mile. A Roman mile slightly shorter than our modern-day American mile. And Jesus says in that context, that, that context where I'm sure when he said it, everybody bristled because a lot of people in that crowd either had the experience or they knew somebody that had the experience of being forced to go that unwanted mile. Now let me step back a moment and say, if you put it in the modern day context, what is it like for you when somebody imposes on your time? Uh, you're walking down the hallway, they want to have a conversation how do you respond in that moment? I mean, we all do it with varying degrees of su success, perhaps, but I, I think it's true that it really does pay to kind of slow down whenever we can and at least acknowledge that person. This is key to this whole thing, is seeing people as people and not as objects. And certainly the Roman soldier became an object to the people in Jesus' day. How could you love somebody? How could you love someone that would force you against your will to do something? And in that context, Jesus says, if you're forced to do it, don't just go one mile, go two. Everybody said, what? There's a famous motivational speaker that said this, there's no traffic jam on the second mile. You notice that? We're more likely to look for a way out than for a way to help out. I know I, I, I'm that way. There have been plenty of times when I could have gone the extra mile, but I went the other way instead. Erwin uh, McManus, who is a writer, pastor, well-known uh, speaker, tells a story about uh, a speaking vacation he had uh, years ago in Florida. He was there with his young family, and, and he was having the opportunity to speak to several thousand single adults about living a life of sacrifice. And he said um, there was a tropical storm that had come through the area, and he was there with his 10-year-old son. And even though the beach was closed because of the weather and what had happened along the beach, Erwin uh, decided to join him along the beach. He's, the boy wanted so to walk on the beach. They're walking along the beach, and he noticed as they walked to 
uh, his right, there were hundreds of singles basking in the Florida sunshine. And he said, just then I caught a glimpse of a man that I hadn't previously noticed. Uh, he wasn't part of the conference, and he appeared to be alone in the crowd. And as I looked, he was a double amputee who had somehow managed to work his way along the seashore with specialized crutches. So picture the scene. Here are all these people having fun, and here's this guy in the midst of this crowd. He's walking along, struggling. He's a double amputee. Suddenly, one of his crutches slips, and he falls hard to the ground. Undaunted, he tries to get up. He manages to get up for a moment, and then he falls again. Irwin writes this. It all happened in an instant, long enough for me to see him to my right and choose to go to my left. Ever been in that place? He adds, I wish I could say I simply wasn't thinking, but the problem was I was thinking. I knew that if I turned to my right, I would have to do something. He continues, I turned to my son and began uh, talking to him to distract him from the scene. We went a few feet, and I felt sure we were free from any responsibility until my son stopped me. And to my surprise, he said, we have to go and help that man. He said, I watched then as my 10-year-old son ran across the beach to help a man while I felt paralyzed in my own hypocrisy. As the boy struggled futilely to help the man, the singles, who I'm sure probably noticed as well, they all went running over. You know how that goes, right? Somebody helps and everybody helps. They all ran over and got the man to his feet. But the boy eventually came running back to his dad, and he said, with tears streaking down his cheeks, I couldn't help him. I wasn't strong enough. Irwin says this, he couldn't see that no one would have helped the man if he hadn't taken the initiative. You see, that's what it looks like to lay down our rights. Sometimes we have to do something that stretches us beyond our human capability. Paul writes, Christ was truly God, but he didn't try to remain equal with God. Instead, he gave up everything and became a slave when he became like one of us. In other words, Jesus, yes, fully God, but when he walked on earth for those 33 years, he set aside his divine prerogatives and he lived as fully human, sinless, perfect, but fully human, so he would model what it's like for us to obediently follow our heavenly Father. Then he gives a fourth example. These are coming right after one another. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, this is a key principle that I, I found over the four decades of being a pastor that few people ever fully embrace. It's that understanding that it all belongs to God. All of our money belongs to God. God wants to teach us a spirit of generosity, but it isn't long even for us that follow Jesus to begin to think that we own it, and when we give something, even to the Lord's or to the Lord's work, we can at times give grudgingly, thinking, well, I got to give this money. Uh, this was put in perspective uh, for me a while ago, not too long ago. I, I was watching, I was on YouTube, I was looking at different things, and I came across a, a Dave Ramsey bit on finances. So I was looking at it, and, and he makes this incredible example. He says, he says, if I walked up to you and I gave you $10,000, you'd be pretty excited. And as I gave you that money, I said, uh, but Kathy, but you have to take this money and take $1,000 of it and give it away. And if Kathy's like the rest of it, she would say, no problem, thank you. He said, but if I walked up a week later to that same person and said, um, you know that $10,000 I gave you last week? I'd like you to give 1000 of it away. Her first reaction would be, what do you mean? That's my money. You notice how that change takes place. You see, when Jesus talks about giving this away, helping those in need, 
He's not talking about going broke by being a soft touch for anyone who asks of you. He's talking about a perspective that says, I realize it all belongs to God. And then in Proverbs, where it says, do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. In other words, he's saying when you hold loosely to life, the blessedness of really possessing nothing or being possessed by nothing, it's so much easier to be generous with what you've received. But then he hits this example after these four brief ones that that is sort of the focal point of all of this. In the final example that's so over the top, he says, give up your right to fear or hate. Give up your right to fear or hate. He takes it all to another level when he says, it's not enough to love the lovable. No brownie points or gold stars given for that. Even the unlovable love their own. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is a common grace for all. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And do you only greet your own people? If so, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Now, I understand how hard this is. When we live in a world like we're living in right now, and you watch the news, you watch those cable networks, you hear what's going on in the world in the moment, it's so easy to let hate and fear run rampant in our hearts. We begin to look at others, and we begin to think of them as different than us, and and somehow we want to, to strike back and get revenge, and that's often the first response. And In the midst of that, Jesus talks about this ethic of love. But, you know, he didn't just talk about it. He died on the cross for us. He gave his life for us. He wanted us to understand what it meant to truly love based on what he modeled for us. So when I think about enemies, to make it simple, let's keep them in two simple categories today. Number one, there are what I call micro-enemies. In other words, individuals. Can you think of anybody right now? Hopefully not, but can you think of anybody that... For, they're like, you're like a cat and they're like a dog to you. Somehow, they're different. I mean, I've heard the expression, if you go back to the book of Genesis, God created dogs before the fall and he created cats after the fall. It's been said. I'm not sure that's true. But, but you get the point. People are divided often based on their personalities. And for whatever reason, some people can get under your skin. I love the old American humorist, Will Rogers. He said this, I never met a man I didn't like Every time I meet a man, I let him talk about himself. That way, I always hear the best. That's pretty good advice. What would happen today in the midst of the tensions we're seeing right now if there was a little more conversation that involved listening and not just speaking past each other? What would happen if we listened to someone else and we gained a fresh perspective? Stories matter. The story that Anna told earlier mattered. To be in a a tent of Syrian refugees and hear this wonderful story. I mentioned earlier that I pastored my first church a little over a decade in San Diego, and and I had a lot of military. I had a lot of Navy, a lot of Marines, and I have nothing but respect for the people that I had the privilege to serve. But I remember there were stories going around. This was right at the end of the Vietnam War. Lots of stories were coming back. And those of you that are old enough to remember, there was a group in Southeast Asia uh, or there's, you know, South Vietnam, the Viet Cong guerrillas who, who at day could appear to be friendly, but at night were the enemy, and, and they wreaked havoc upon our troops. And there was a group of American GIs that were going through the thick uh, brush, 
And as they're walking along, they surprised the enemy. They came up on the enemy unexpectedly. The advantage fell to the Americans. Right away, they leveled their guns. They were about to fire. And just then, as these enemy troops stood, one of the enemy raised their hands and in perfect English said, please, don't shoot. And on hearing those words, everyone froze. They couldn't bring themselves to shoot someone they understood. And I think that's a profound lesson for our day. When we don't understand people, the inclination is to either fear them or hate them. What about macro enemies? These are large groups of people. These can include ethnic groups, entire nations. People we see as foes out of fear or misunderstanding, but sometimes for real reasons. You know, Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. He makes it very clear that even enemies of ours are somehow to be treated in a way that shows concern for them. He says, do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. This is Paul writing. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, now listen to this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Now, we don't understand this passage so well in the Western world, but some of us have traveled enough in the other part of the world and in the Middle East to know that when, when even an enemy comes in need of hospitality, in so much of the world, not just the Middle East, so much of the world, the first action is to show hospitality. And Jesus is just pleading in this passage, and Paul in this context, to keep that in mind that there's nothing more powerful than an act of love. Well, after saying all this, Jesus wraps things up with a very sobering admonition. Verse 48. Look at this, look at this verse. It's, it's kind of a mind-blowing verse. After laying all this stuff on them, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Boom. End of sermon. Drop mic. Walk away. It's like... <laughs> and I'm sure his disciples, as they heard this, they, they kind of grabbed their heads and said, How is this even possible? And the reality is, Jesus... I'm sure was internally smiling the whole time because he was simply reminding them it's not possible. Nothing we've been talking about this morning is possible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Human perfection is not an option on the table. All of us have and will continue to blow it on occasion. Even after hearing a message like this, I guarantee you before the day is over, you will have violated along with me one or more of the very things we've talked about today. But rather than let that discourage you, Jesus says, take confidence in who I am. My power to forgive, my power to change you, whether in the moment or over time. Several years ago, there was a, a conference that went around. It would be in various parts of the country. It was, Billy Graham actually put it on. It was called the Billy Graham School of Evangelism. And pastors and lay leaders would come to these trainings, and they would learn more about their faith and how to share it. But oftentimes, they would learn a lot of theology and, and there was a young man that attended the conference, a young pastor, and the thing that struck him was the clear teaching in the Bible, it goes like this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what sin means in its foundational meaning, is to fall short, to be unable to live up to God's perfection, the very thing Jesus called for. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, this just uh, ruminated in this guy's mind all week long, and he began to thank God. Even when I fail, even when I'm at my worst God is still there with his grace, and he wants to bring glory into that situation because he's a perfect God. 
Well, on the last day of the conference, this young pastor was asked to pray unexpectedly. He was in a large seminar, and he got up, so he was nervous as he prayed, and he prayed a lovely prayer. But then part of the way through the prayer, as he was closing, he said this, reminding himself of this passage. And he said, this is true, he said this, I especially thank you, Lord, for my falling shorts. (laughs) Now, I doubt that's exactly what he had in mind, literally. But isn't it great that you can thank God that even in the midst of all of our shortcomings that the Lord has forgiven us if we call upon him? You see, nothing in the Sermon on the Mount is doable without God's help. Nothing we're going to talk about all summer is doable on your own power. The good news is, the fortunate news is, we have all the power we need through his perfect son, Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you to bow your head with me this morning. I I just want to walk you through a little reflection time. So just think with me. It'll be different for all of us, perhaps, but maybe you're here this morning and, and you've got vengeance in your heart. You're angry at somebody or you're angry at what you see in the world, but it's not a righteous anger. When you look at it, honestly, it's really revenge. Would you lay that before Jesus today? For some of you, your life has become consumed with things, things, things. Can you take a moment to think about what really matters in life? What will those things mean to you in 20 years, 50 years? Others of you, it's your time. Time is so precious, you don't even have time for your kids. You don't have time for your spouse. You've got things to do and people to see and deals to make. Maybe time is the one where Jesus is putting his finger on your shoulder. Others of you, it's money. I mean, money is a challenge. Money is what we get in exchange for our time. It's what we get in exchange for our lives. And so we tend to think it belongs to us. But Jesus said, no, we're just stewards. And one day we're going to give an account. Ah, but for many of us today in this troubled world, It could be to hate someone or to hate what's going on with a given people group or something we see in the news that just sets us off every time. Over all of that, Jesus would say to us, and I would would say as well, the call is to love, even when it's hard, even when it hurts, even when we don't get the response we expect. So Jesus, it's in that spirit today that we close this message that we would love our enemies even as you called upon us to do for your glory and not for our benefit. In Jesus' name. Mm